We are continuing through the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 5 this morning, and Luke is going to give us a a pair of uh, stories here that we're going to look at. Uh, Luke obviously could have picked any one of hundreds of incidences that occurred in the life of Jesus. He could have have zoomed in on any number of events, but he chooses these particular two healings. Um, He chooses the first one. It presents a particular interesting, I think, theological uh, point that Luke wants to emphasize. Uh, And then he picks the second one for a different reason, which we'll look at in just a moment when we get there. So starting in verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy, as we know the disease today, is known as Hansen's disease. But in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, in the ancient world, they probably were nowhere near as technical in regards to what this disease was. It probably covered a large range of various skin diseases, including, most likely, Hansen's disease as well. Now, Hansen's disease is a, it's an interesting thing. We have a cure for it now. Uh, we live in Texas, by the way, so you may want to be careful about if you have an armadillo and you go handle the thing. Many of them naturally carry leprosy, Hansen's disease. So if you're handling armadillos, you may want to wash your hands afterwards, and uh, if you're really concerned, you may want to go see a doctor. Uh, stay away from the armadillos, if you can at all avoid that. Um, this was an interesting skin disease. It did result in deformity. Uh, it resulted in things on your skin. At, but many of the things that the ancient world thought were a result of leprosy actually occurred, uh, particularly Hansen's disease, from the fact that it reduced or virtually eliminated feeling in many parts of your extremities. So they used to think, well, leprosy would like cause your finger to fall off, for instance. Because people had leprosy, their fingers would fall off. Um, But come to find out, leprosy doesn't necessarily cause that. However, having no feeling in your hand and reaching up and picking up a pot, which is really hot, and setting it down and going, well, I don't think it was that hot. I didn't feel anything. Uh, Come to find out. Because you have no feeling in your hand, it actually was very hot. You completely cooked the fingers of your hand. And, of course, when infection sets in, you don't really notice that because you don't feel that either. And because you have no feeling in your hands, next thing you know, they're gangrenous and your fingers are falling off. We tend to look at pain. We tend to look at our bodies in pain and think, boy, wouldn't it be nice to not feel any pain? Um, Be careful about thinking that. Hansen's disease can, in fact, cause you to not feel any pain. And it does produce its own set of very difficult problems. Sometimes folks, like with diabetes, will lose the feeling in their lower extremities. And the next thing you know, you've stepped on a tack, and it's sitting there on the bottom of your foot, and you have no idea. And days, if not weeks, might go by without anyone ever noticing. And the next thing you know, you're... Things are not going well there as well. It is contagious. Leprosy was a contagious disease. Uh, Hansen's disease is a little difficult to pass on, but it can be passed on. Um, And so if you had leprosy in the ancient world, 
Moses spoke to it specifically in Leviticus chapter 13. Two verses, they say this. The leper who has an infection, his clothes shall be torn. uh, The hair of his head will be uncovered. And he shall cover his face, his mouth, and say, unclean, unclean. And he will remain unclean all the days during which he has this infection. He will be unclean. He will live alone. He needs to dwell outside the camp. So if you were diagnosed, and all of chapter 13 of Leviticus goes into the priest diagnosing you with leprosy, if you were found to have a, a skin disease, leprosy being one of them, that was oozing or whatever, there was a long list, you can read it, uh, you had to be outside the camp, and if you had to come inside the camp, you were to cover your mouth and to, and to cry out, unclean, unclean. This is why, in Luke chapter 17, when we get there, Jesus will enter into this village, and here are ten guys who stand at a distance outside of the village. That's, that's what you were supposed to do. You're not supposed to get near people. So the very fact that this guy, Jesus is in a city, and there's this guy covered with leprosy, and he's in the city... You know, it's, uh, he's either desperate, which he probably is, but he's not supposed to be in the city. You're supposed to stay outside of the city. And so, but he's there, we would suspect, because he knows Jesus is there and he wants to get near him. And he's like, Jesus, if you would, he cries out to him, I, I, if you're willing, I know that you can make me clean. Now that is an amazing display of faith. This is a guy who is not, he's not even really asking Jesus to heal him. He's just simply saying, I I know that you could do this if if you wanted to. Here I am, you know, I'm in a desperate position here. I've got leprosy, I'm an outcast, no work. I live only on on the generosity or the mercy of anyone who would like to have some on me. Oftentimes, this was looked at as an affliction that may have been caused by some kind of sin you committed. I mean, people didn't always think clearly about how that all went. So if you got leprosy, you must have done something to make God mad at you. So that meant we don't have to show you great mercy. So this guy is in a tough spot. Now, what does Jesus do? He does a most amazing thing, and I think Luke presents this specifically because... Luke wants us to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is not just a great teacher. He is not just a great prophet. He is something more than that. Jesus stretches his hand out and touches the leper. If you read in the Old Testament, the prophet Haggai, Haggai posts a question to the religious leaders of his day in Haggai 2, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. Ask the religious leaders for a ruling. Here's here's the question. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, that is, this has been offered, the sacrifice has occurred, all the procedures that are necessary to make this piece of meat a holy sacrifice, separate unto God piece of meat, we have, we have followed all the prescriptions that Moses laid out. And so now I've got this piece of meat that the priest can eat and it's clean. This is a ceremonially clean piece of meat. Well, if he's carrying this and he touches bread with the fold or cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, will that food 
become holy. You're carrying this holy piece of meat, and if you touch something that is not holy, if you touch a common bread or, or wine or oil or any other food, do they become holy because they touch the holy food? And the answer, of course, is no. No, that's not what happens. What happens is that holy piece of meat now becomes unholy. The clean piece of meat becomes unclean. That's what happens. Haggai says, well, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will they become unclean? And the answer is, of course they will be. If you're unclean, if you've gone out and you've touched a corpse so that you're unclean and you go in and you touch cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, you're going to make it unclean. No one can eat it anymore. That's the law about unclean things. You don't touch unclean things. And lepers in particular are extremely unclean things. You don't touch them. And if you do touch them, what happens is you become unclean. Except Jesus. When Jesus touches the unclean leper, the leper becomes clean. Luke is trying to get us and the people of his day to really theologically put this together. Think carefully here. Jesus is not just a priest. Because any priest who did what Jesus did, in fact, anybody who did what Jesus did, you go over and touch lepers, you're unclean. Not Jesus. Jesus touches the leper, and he becomes clean. Jesus is unique. There's nobody like him. And that's the point Luke is trying to make. So, Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves him. Now, he orders him to tell no one. Don't, don't, don't spread this around. I, just stay quiet about this. This is what I want you to do. Specifically, I want you to go and show yourself to the priest, make the offering which Moses prescribes for your cleansing, and be a testimony to them. Go to the priest's Everyone knows you're a leper. Everyone knows that you're covered in leprosy. If you will just go to the priest and it'll take eight days for them to determine that you are completely clean. They will declare you ceremonially clean and we won't have any confusion here. We'll follow the law of Moses. You will be ceremonially clean as well as, in fact, clean of the leprosy. And they'll look at you and say, how in the world did this happen? And you will be able to say to them, Jesus touched me and my leprosy left and that will give them all something to think about which they desperately need to sit and think about is this what the guy does no but the news about him was spreading even further um, because the guy doesn't do this he runs out and tells everybody so the news about Jesus and of the guy cleansed of his leprosy was spreading even further. And so now we end up with large crowds come to hear him to be healed of their sickness. We know that in the other Gospels, Mark will, in particular, this exact same event, Mark chapter 1, verse 43, he sternly warns him and immediately sent him away and said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest. But Mark tells us, Verse 45, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to everybody to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they ended up coming to him from everywhere. But 
Who came to him from everywhere? Well, the people who came to him from everywhere were those people who could actually come to him. Where were the most sick people? Well, the most sick people are in the city who can't get out and come to him. So this guy, by running around and telling everybody what great miracle he got and what a great healer Jesus is, proceeds to thwart the very thing he's trying to promote. He's trying to promote Jesus as this great healer, but now people can't actually get near Jesus to be healed. You've, you've made it so that so many people throng Jesus, he can't even go in a city anymore. He's got to go way out in the country. How many people didn't get healed because Jesus could no longer go into the city? Well, we're about to find out, which is why we're going to go to this next passage and look at this because I don't think Luke randomly picks this guy. I think Luke's got some other points to make too, but we're going to see that, so one day Jesus was teaching, uh, sorry, verse 16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus, you would think, if anyone didn't need to pray, surely Jesus didn't need to pray. I mean, after all, you know, it's, he's the son of God, right? Uh, no, actually, Jesus would often get out and spend some time alone in prayer with God. Now, if Jesus needs to go out and spend some time alone in prayer to God, what do you think about the rest of us? So if you don't spend a little bit of time, once in a while, alone, by yourself, praying to God, well, you're missing out. You really need to do this. Particularly when the pressures of life get really hard, which is where Jesus is at. There's some real pressure here. Some real expectations. I mean, he's thronged by people. And they all want something from him. And the way to get recharged and the way to be able to continue to give like you need to give and to be the person you need to be is to, every once in a while, it's just fine. Get out alone and just sit and chat with God. Just have a chat with God. How's life going? And don't, just be truthful. God knows exactly how your life is going anyway, so you might as well just sit and have a conversation with him. Jesus would do this often. He would slip away, find his way out into the wilderness, get away from everybody, and just talk to God. Now, one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. So he's teaching. He is not in a city. We know because Mark has told us he can't go back in the cities anymore. He's out in the countryside, probably in some large house, and the person who owns the house, we don't know exactly who that is, but here we have, verse 17, some Pharisees and teachers of the law are sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. So we have people from pretty much the whole country have all made their way, all of Israel, including all the way to Jerusalem. We have now religious leaders who have shown up here to hear Jesus. This is an impressive group. These people, um, they're well-educated. The, the teachers of the law, the scribes, as it were. Remember, they did not have electronic versions of their scriptures. They had scrolls. You literally rolled them. Golems, you know? If you've ever seen, you don't have to go to Israel, although it's fun if you do, but if you go, you can see like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they've got the Isaiah Scroll. They've got it on a big display. It's very impressive. Uh, and, and it's in columns. And now, I don't know about you, but um, I try, uh, not so much anymore because I do have electro electronic versions, but in my youth, I, had, I tried to always have the same Bible because you had to find verses. You knew they were in there. 
You can remember them, but where in the world were they? You know, if you always read the same Bible, and, and even if it wore out, you just bought another one exactly the same, you could actually think, well, it's about this far in, and it's on the bottom of the page, down here on the right, and uh, oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, well, that's the scribes. These guys spent their entire lives doing nothing but studying the scriptures. And if you're like, where's that verse that says? Okay, well, they couldn't Google it, so you scribed it, right? You'd go to the scribe and you'd go, where's that verse that says? And he would pull out some scroll and he would roll down through it. And these are guys who really knew their scripture and, well, what, what it said. They weren't necessarily great exegetes, but they certainly knew what it said. So Jesus is teaching. Now, the Pharisees were another group of people who arose during the intertestament period, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and when Jesus shows up, these guys have formed a political party. They're mostly middle class. They have taken it upon themselves to be the true representatives of the law of Moses. Some of them, many of them, most of them, have gone to great excess and are in fact living lives of pretty much open hypocrisy where they lay all kinds of burdens on people but not on themselves. And they take their traditions and the letter of the law. They would, uh, for instance, Moses made it very clear that you had a responsibility to take care of your parents. You had to expend some of your wealth to take care of your parents. Okay, well, what they would do is they would dedicate everything they owned to the temple. They didn't actually give it to the temple, mind you. They still lived in their house, and they still enjoyed the, all, of the, all of the benefits of all of their wealth. They completely enjoyed. But when their parents came to them and said, hey, we're starving to death. Oh, sorry. So sorry. Uh, I can't. Everything I've got, I've, it's been dedicated to the temple. So Korabans, what it was called. I, it's, it's all Korban. So I, 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 and Jesus says to them, you hypocrites. You know, by this thing where which you're serving God. You're not serving God. You're just avoiding your responsibilities. So they were doing those kinds of things. They are there at this time. And this is the first time, by the way, Luke mentions them. They are there to observe Jesus. They are... Hmm, there, there's no indication that this is a positive observation. They are not there to give him their stamp of approval. Even by this point, they are there critically. What is this guy going to say? What, well, what is this upstart prophet who fancies himself a prophet from Galilee? I mean, any good thing come out of Galilee? Who does this guy think he is? I mean, we've heard that there's some kind of miraculous thing or something, but, yeah, well, we're going to go and we're going to check this out for ourselves firsthand. We're going to hear what he has to say and we're going to see. So that's what's occurring. He's teaching. Pharisees, teachers of the law, are sitting there, and they're not sitting there, I mean, they're there to learn things, but not like you think, right? They're looking for a reason to do something. So, Jesus, well aware, by the way, Jesus knows exactly why they're there. He knows exactly what they're doing. He's, he's aware that they're looking for a reason to condemn him, because they're jealous of him, because he apparently can do things they can't. So the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Jesus is under the Spirit of God. He has veiled his deity. He has chosen to set aside his his sovereign prerogatives and operates now under the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is there present to heal. Now, remember, you can't go back in the cities anymore. Too big a crowd. So he's out now in the country at a probably fairly large house Almost all of them were single-story with a, a roof, 
and with a, a, a fence around the roof so that you wouldn't fall off. And often at night, you'd go up on the roof because it was cool up there. So there was a set of stairs generally up the outside of the building, and you could get up on the roof. That was a, a standard thing. Well, here come some men carrying on a bed a guy who's paralyzed. And they're trying to bring him and set him in down in front of Jesus, but they can't find any way to bring him in, right? Because the, the crowd is just so thick. And so they decide, well, I know what we'll do, you know, We'll fix this. So put yourself for just a moment in the position of this guy, right? The paralyzed guy. You can imagine the conversation, right? This guy lives in the city. And he's like, man, you know, I was really hoping that the time would come that Jesus would go through our city and I'd be able to, to find him and, and I, I could get healed. And now look. He's not going to come into the city. We know he doesn't come into the cities anymore because there's so many people that want to get healed. And, I, and you can see his friends. Hey, we can fix this. What? what, what? We will put together a stretcher. And if, and if you can't, if, if we can't get Jesus to come to us, we'll go to him. We'll, we'll take him. Okay, well, this sounds good, right? Oh, well, all right. Okay, if you guys want to do that. Okay, so... They put you on the stretcher, and they pick you up, and off you go. And, you know, at first, I suspect if you're the person on the stretcher, um, this sounds all good until we get there. And now, uh, look, you know, can't get to Jesus. Uh, some guy looks around and says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go on the roof. Let's, we'll just take a hole in the roof and, and put you down through. Now, if you're the person on, on the stretcher, I mean, come on, really. How are you going to react to that? I mean, do you know people who have physical difficulties? I, almost to the person. Every one of them is like, hey, no, really, seriously, no. It's, you guys have done enough. You guys have done enough. I mean, you've already hauled me down here. We've already, I mean, come on, this is our best shot. We came down here to see Jesus. We can't get to him, really. Just take me back home. No, no, oh, no. And what are you going to do? I mean, you're paralyzed, right? So they pick you up and they haul you up the stairs and they, and they put you on the roof and they set you down and they start digging a hole in the roof. You're like, oh, please, guys, no. I mean, don't. Next thing you know, not only have they dug a hole in the roof, but now they're putting you down the hole. You're like, uh, how do you think this is going to go? Everybody in the place is now just staring at you as you come down the roof. And now you make eye contact with Jesus. And when you make eye con contact with Jesus, what is the first thing that's going to come out of your lips? Oh, really? I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? It's like, look, they, they, what am I supposed to do? I mean, they, they put me down the hole in the roof. I, I mean, I wanted to be here, and I wanted to be healed. And, but really, I, you know, forgive me. Can't you see this guy saying that? I mean, isn't that what you'd say? Is that what I'd say? We'd all look at Jesus like, forgive me. Well, you know what? Jesus is going to forgive him. But Jesus is going to forgive him for a whole lot more than he thinks he's going to be forgiven for. This is not just a matter of forgiving you for disrupting the meeting and for digging a hole in the guy's roof and for acting like, I don't know what. I mean, here you are insisting, dropping right down in front of Jesus like somehow he's got to heal you. Uh, the fact is that this guy has great faith. And his friends have great faith. And they are going to extremes. This, this is a, they are disrupting the meeting. 
I mean, they're over there digging a hole in the roof. You think people in the meeting don't know this is that? You think they did this without something falling down into the crowd? I mean, of course something did. And everyone is kind of looking at what's the noise up there on the roof and what is going on. And Jesus keeps teaching, and then they put the guy down. And, and of course, now the guy is, I mean, we're here because Jesus can heal me. And I am sorry, but I'm also really glad. And so Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the guy, friend, I don't need to forgive you for all this. I forgive you for everything. Your sins are forgiven. You are completely forgiven. Forget the roof. Forget. Forget everything else. You are forgiven. This is a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. This is a moment when, if you think Jesus touching the leper was something, this is more. Jesus is making a line that insists you step on one side or the other. Jesus, by the way, well aware that the scribes and Pharisees are there, well aware that they're wondering who he is. Is this guy a prophet? Is this guy what, represent God? Is this, who in the world is this guy? Exactly where does he stand on things? Are we to promote him or condemn him? Um, here's what they say. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, and this is just in their heads, by the way. They're not actually talking, just to themselves. Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? I mean, who can forgive sins but God alone? How dare this guy claim the prerogative of God? Who is this guy to offer forgiveness of, this, of anybody's sins? Now, the fact is that they are not theologically incorrect. This is a good assessment of the reality of the situation. I, who can forgive your sins? I mean, if you come to me and you're like, oh, please forgive me, I did whatever. You know, unless whatever you did was an actual sin against me, I, I can't forgive you. Who am I to forgive you? I, you? You need the forgiveness of God. Now, that's not to say you don't need the forgiveness of the people that you sinned against, if you, in fact, did that. But the fact is, ultimately, all sin is against God. So for someone to just declare your sins are forgiven, that is the prerogative of God. A generation or so back, there was a, there was a book, I, I, I don't recall the actual name of the book, but contained in the book was this basic thesis. If you want to live a good, godly life, you should ask yourself this question, and I bet I could pause for a second, and most of you could think of what the question is I'm about to give you. It goes by a certain set of initials that you might like put in your bumper sticker, you know. What would Jesus do, right? Okay, that's not a bad that, in fact, can be a good thing, but it does have one fatal flaw. And that is, do you actually have the theological depth and an understanding well enough of who Jesus is in order to actually accurately answer that question? Because if you think that Jesus is just a 60s hippie who would love joy and peace and forgive everybody, and that's who you think Jesus is, and so, well, you know, we shouldn't be condemning, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't ever cause controversy, and, you know, I mean, if that's, if that's who you think Jesus is, so whenever you ask, well, what would Jesus do? Well, obviously, Jesus would just let anybody do anything. Well, okay. It's a good question. Let's get a look at the 
actual answer. Let's, let's look at what the Bible actually says. Not just some Jesus we've dreamed up, not some Jesus of our imagination, but the Jesus of the actual scriptures. Here are a group of religious leaders. They are there because they have a problem with Jesus. They are here because they're not certain of who Jesus is and they're kind of, they have not come to the place at all where they have made up their mind that he is in fact a true prophet or actually I think they've already made up their mind that he's not and that he comes from Galilee and no good people comes up from Galilee. And, and, and then in the midst of this situation, in front of them all, Jesus basically rolls out a grenade with the pin pulled out of it, right into the middle of it. He forgives this guy's sins. Your sins are forgiven. Why in the world would make you say that? Don't you understand how everyone's going to react to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jesus knows exactly how they're going to react to that. That's why he did it. That's what Jesus would do. He would throw out the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That's what Jesus would do. Because that's exactly what Jesus does do. He forgives this man's sins. He claims the prerogative of deity. Draw the line. I forgave the man's sins. Who can do that except God? Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, right. Good conclusion to draw. Guess what else conclusion you should draw? Jesus, verse 22, aware of their reasoning, answers and says to them, aware of their thoughts, by the way. They haven't said a word, but he knows what they're thinking. So he answers them and, 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 and he asks them a question, which is good. That's how God often works. In fact, the last thing you want is for God to start asking you questions. If you've read the scriptures at all, and you actually look at the questions of God, when God starts asking questions, it generally doesn't go well for the people to whom he's asking questions. God is usually trying to make some kind of a point. Um, ask Job how the asking of questions by God goes. It's not, it's not good. Peter starts at God, Jesus starts asking Peter's questions. Do you love me more than these fish? I mean, do you? I mean, Jesus asked him that three times. Oh, Lord, you know I love you. I mean, when when Jesus starts asking questions, hope he's not asking them of you. So Jesus looks at them and, and asks them a question. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Now I want you to think for a second about that question. And the fact that Jesus is asking them this. Why? What, what are you reasoning in your hearts? You're over there saying to yourselves, and, and they state very clearly what it is they're reasoning. They, they reason to themselves and say, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God? Well, why are you reasoning that? Why are you reasoning that, that this is blasphemy? Do you get the point of Jesus' question? Jesus is trying to say to them, look, there's no reasoning here. Of course I can forgive the guy's sins. I am your God. And the fact is, at this point in his ministry, having gone now at least a year, he's at least a year into his ministry, by this point it should have been crystal clear to anyone who was paying attention that Jesus was their Messiah. No excuse. There's, there's no... Why, why in the world are you even doing sitting around reasoning in your hearts? Can't you guys put this together? 
Of course I'm forgiving this guy's sins because I am your God. I am God. That's who I am. And you should be bowing down and worshiping me. You should be repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And you should be falling at my feet and asking me what you can do to be good members of the kingdom. Of course this is what you should be doing. You should not be sitting around saying to yourself, who does this guy think he is? Why are you reasoning that for? What do you mean, who do I think I am? You should all by now know exactly who I am. And by the way, Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus doesn't say to them, well, you know, you have your version of truth and I have my version of truth. And I mean, after all, we wouldn't want to step on anybody's toes, you know. So you guys just believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and we just have to love one another, you know. We just, we just all love one another. Now, Jesus is loving, not suggesting he isn't loving. Jesus has great love for the paralyzed guy in front of him. In fact, in a moment, he's going to heal him. He has great compassion on him. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is willing to forgive the sins of anybody in the room. But these guys who are nothing but condemning him, and in fact, ultimately, will be the same group of people who will crucify him, um, No, we're drawing a very bright line here. And you need to decide which side you stand on or not. Am I God or am I not? Am I who I say I am or am I not? And I'm not going to leave it so that you can have some kind of squishy middle ground here. You can't say, well, Jesus is a great prophet and a good teacher. Really? He forgave people's sins. Do great prophets and good teachers forgive people's sins? Do they touch lepers and cleanse them? So this is the first moment, by the way, that Jesus is going to link his, his miraculous ministry with his teaching ministry and make it very clear that you cannot separate those two. The things which he's saying and the things which he are, he's doing make him who he is. And you must come to a conclusion about who you think Jesus is. He's not just a great guy. He's not just a good guy. He's not just a wonderful prophet. He is, in fact, God. Or he's a liar. There's really no choice here. One side or the other. And Jesus makes every effort to draw that line as bright as he can. In fact, he is about to make that line even brighter. He asks them another question. Question two. So let me tell you, what's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven. Or to say to this guy who is paralyzed, get up and walk. So I'll throw that out to you. Which of those two things is it easier to say? Well, it's pretty obvious, pretty quick, right, which one of those is easier to say. I mean, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, after all, who can prove that wrong? Who, oh, I, I don't know. Are his sins forgiven? I, mean, I guess they are. I mean, how do we know whether they are or not? I mean, you can say that. Anybody can say it. We can all say it. You can can put out banners on the side of your church telling the world, you're forgiven. Are they forgiven? Are they forgiven just because you bought a big banner and stuck it on the side of the building? Is Is that how people get forgiven? Forgiveness is one of those things that God gives. So Jesus can forgive, but how do we know? How do we really know? It's... Obviously, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. But now Jesus is going to make sure that there is no doubt in anyone's mind 
that he has the power to forgive sin. Because, yes, I've said your sins are forgiven, but now I'm going to back that up. And I'm going to back it up with a display of the power of God. And you're going to be left with a very serious theological conundrum here in just a moment. So, he says in verse 24, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I mean, he's linking these things together. You cannot separate them. The authority of Jesus to forgive people's sins... The authority to say, your sins are gone. Wow. I mean, that is some authority. Imagine you had the ability to just forgive people's sins. Jesus has that authority. So that you may know that he has that authority. He said to the guy who's paralyzed, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Okay. So now, we're about to find out exactly who has the power of God and who doesn't. If this guy can't get out of this stretcher and can't stand up and can't do anything, then Jesus is a liar. But if he does stand up and pick up a stretcher and walk through the crowd and go home rejoicing, well, then we've seen the power of God. And, of course, immediately he got up before them. Immediately. There's There's no pause. There's no drama. There's no. I mean, he just stands up. Jesus told him to get up. He gets up. Who knows how long he's been paralyzed? Who knows why he's paralyzed? Who knows whether it's from birth or an accident? It doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is he's no longer paralyzed. And so he stands up and he picks up what he'd been laying on and he heads home giving glory to God. The great power of God has been displayed. My sins are forgiven and I can walk. Great day for him. Fantastic day. It doesn't get any better. I mean, this is it. And the better of the two was his sins are forgiven. That'll be forever. He got old and died. He's not with us anymore. But he's in heaven. His sins are forgiven. They were all struck with astonishment and all began glorifying God. Kind of hard not to, right? I mean, wow. Um, But we also know that others were filled with fear. And only said, well, we've seen remarkable things today. I suspect he's referring there to the scribes and the Pharisees who, it's all interesting. It's amazing even. There's one thing we don't see, though. There's, there's one event that doesn't happen that should happen. Having witnessed this miraculous event, no one has the reaction, as we saw last week, of Peter. Remember when Jesus taught in Peter's boat and then they went out and Jesus said, I want you to let down the net. And Peter's like, you know, I've been up all night. Okay, okay. You want us to let down the net? We'll let down the net. Sure. And when they pull up the net, it's got more fish than two boats can hold. And Peter's reaction to that miracle is this. When When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, please go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter repents. Peter looks at at Jesus like, you are holy and righteous, and I am not. People are filled with fear in this event with the the guy who's, I mean, they glorify God. It's a great work of God. 
little scary, actually, to kind of see someone have that power. I mean, you, you think that you understand how the world works and that you kind of stand on solid ground and all, and then you watch some guy actually do something like that, and you think, okay, what else could this guy do? This is a little scary. Um, what there isn't is repentance. No one falls at the feet of Jesus and says, would you, uh, uh, you forgive me? Can I be forgiven? You forgave that guy. Can you forgive me? I, I'm as sinful as him or more. Having seen the great power of God, do people fall on their faces and repent? No. Oh, they were fearful. They said amazing things happened. They, they said glory to God, the, the lame guy. But there's no repentance. There's no national sense of this is God in our midst. And by the way, as we go through, we will see that it, of course, only gets worse. And it will come to the place where, oh, they're happy to see Jesus do miracles. They hope that he heals them. But repentance? Repentance is few and far between. And so when we watch what Jesus is doing, he is making it very clear for everyone that you have a choice to make. You either accept him as your God, your Lord, your Savior, or you call him a liar. And here's the problem. Jesus has now linked this, this healing with his message. So that you may know the Son of God has the authority to forgive sins, I say to the lame man, get up and walk. Okay, well, so when the guy gets up and walks, what are you going to say? Why, you did that by the devil? How long could you possibly say that? Look at this great work that Jesus is doing. He's doing this great, good thing. And he says the man's sins are forgiven. You're going to say, well, the guy's sins aren't really forgiven. So God lets liars give people who are lame the ability to walk? I mean, you, you cannot reconcile them. It's a package deal. Either Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is and has the power he says he has by the power of God, or you've got to come up with some other thing. And, of course, we know what they will come up with is that, well, you're just energized by the devil, which is ridiculous on its face. The devil makes healthy people sick. He doesn't make sick people healthy. And, obviously, everyone in the room should have acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Everybody in that room should have fallen on their face right there and repented and acknowledged Jesus as who he was. They don't. We should. We'd better. And this is why Luke records this. Jesus can touch lepers and make them clean. Jesus can forgive people's sins. And Jesus can make the lame whole. Because Jesus is God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you present to us in this scripture such a clear picture of who you are and that you became a man and came down to this earth. Lord, it, is, it, it, it requires everything of us. Our worship, our praise, our adoration. Who are we that you would leave heaven and come down here to live amongst us, to be misunderstood? And the people who should have known better, who clearly should have been aware of who you were, were the very people who crucified you. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much. 
that you were willing to endure that. You were willing to go through this on our behalf. May we love you and serve you because of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.